Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I'm joining you all from the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Allie Bernison. Oh, thanks, Becca. I'm Allie, and I'm joining you all from Los Angeles, California. By the way, if you enjoy our podcast and you would like to help us get the word out about our podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. It just helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. So this week, we had an awesome conversation with Steve Hackman. So Steve Hackman is a Hong Kong-based travel writer, educator, and speaker who has been the head of Christian and community development at Yu Chung Education Foundation for more than a decade. Overseeing that foundation's Seeds of Hope program, Steve has helped raise over $500,000 for educational projects across China and the Philippines. Steve is an experienced adventurer, having completed numerous cross-country journeys, including the 500-mile Camino de Santiago in Spain, as well as the 1,100-mile Via Franchigena from England to Rome, Italy. He hosts the podcast Beyond the Pale, which explores living life and spiritual faith through the lens of pilgrimage. Steve holds a bachelor's degree in ancient history and English from the University of South Africa a master's degree in public administration from the University of Colorado, and a a diploma in education through the University of Sunderland. I'm really excited to talk to Steve and hear more about his story. Really cool to get the chance to to learn from him today. Um, And we wanted to share a peace quote by an incredible author, pastor, and sort of modern, like, Phyllis, I don't know if he's a philosopher or theologian, mm. but kind of like um, has that sort of bend, I think. So anyways, um, the quote says, Jesus never intended to change the world through battlefields or voting booths. Jesus had always intended to transform the world one life at a time at a shared table. Mm. And that's by Brian Zond. And I think you'll find this quote relevant in our conversation with Steve, which um, you will discover soon. Well, welcome, Steve. Um, We're really excited to get the chance to talk with you today. Um, You're all the way in Hong Kong, and we're really excited to learn more about your story and some of the work that you do. And um, yeah, even talk a little bit about some peacemaking prospects there. Um, So would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and your journey of getting to where you are today? Sure. Um, Well, at 56 years old, it's been quite a journey. But um, I I think probably it has to start with when I first uh, became a Christian. Uh, My family was Lutheran raised, and uh, we got invited when we moved into suburban Detroit um, from a neighbor to come to a Lutheran church. And this was the tail end of the Jesus movement. This was the mid-70s. And we'd entered a Lutheran church where the pastor had started speaking in tongues, doing the whole Holy Spirit thing. And we just got, the whole family got wound up in the whole Jesus movement thing that was happening at that, at that point. And, um, my, uh, I like to say the, uh, the Luth- you know, speaking in tongues doesn't go over with the Lutherans in the long run. And so he got the left foot of fellowship and we all ended up uh, in this independent church. And uh, but from an early age, I just was always fascinated with the things of God, even when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. And um, this led to when I was a little bit older, uh, deciding as I was sharing off screen, I had two two passions. I had God on one side, and I was always involved with drama in and stage plays and things like that. So I I'd saved up all this money to move to Los Angeles to become an actor, and I ended up instead through a process that it would take too long in a podcast. 
but just feeling I was supposed to go into Christian ministry. And I knew I didn't want to be a pastor because in my mind, pastors dealt with people's personal problems all day. It just seemed like boring. Like I, I was young, you know, I, and and I wanted to see the world and I wanted to do something exciting. And so going and being part of Youth with a Mission, if you're not familiar with Youth with a Mission, it's a parachurch missionary group that's been going on for about 30, 40 years. And they have mission bases all over the world. And so I chose one. Uh, I went to Melbourne, Australia. And while I was 22 years old, and while I was in Melbourne, Australia, we ended up going on a seven-week outreach to Malaysia. And and I was really enjoying like seeing the world and telling people about Jesus and all these things. And while I was in Malaysia, I picked up a book in a Christian bookstore called Heart Cry for China. And I must have read that twice while I was in the jungles of Borneo. I couldn't stop, you know, reading this book and about what God was doing in China. And my parents had done some short-term missions work to Hong Kong. And so when I got back from Australia, I immediately was looking at how can I get to Hong Kong? And I thought I'll go for like five months. And at the time it involved a lot of, because it was British at the time, it involved taking Bibles from British Hong Kong over the border into mainland China to help support the underground church there, which sounded all James Bondy and cool to me. And and it, it was a wonderful experience. I remember, I think between 1990 and 2003 or four, I probably made 200 trips over the border. Um, taking in Bibles, meeting with underground church leaders in China, supporting them. Uh, it was a fascinating time. I remember one time there was a border guard who um, had, he, he would occasionally recognize me. And when he would, he'd pull me into a confiscation office. And I have to make uh, note that it wasn't illegal to take Bibles into China. They would just confiscate them from you. They would hold them at the border, give you a receipt, and you could take them, you could get them again on the way back into Hong Kong. And so this, this guy recognized me one time, and he takes me into the confiscation office. In fact, he even joked with me because he'd asked me why I, was, I kept doing this. And I said, you know, God loves the Chinese people. And, and so when he saw me, I'll never forget this. He goes, ah, Mr. Hackman, back again to save the Chinese people. And he goes, you know, the, you know and he takes me into the confiscation office. And I knew the drill. They give you these, these canvas bags, and I start putting my Bibles into the canvas bags, and he leaves. And as soon as he left, the young Chinese girl that was attending in there started putting the Bibles back into my bag. And my, my Chinese was not great then. It's still not great. But I, I just said, you know, Wei Shema, why, why, why are you doing this? And she, she reached down and she pulled out a cross. And she, she was a Christian. And she was basically, go, get, take the Bibles and, and go. And it was those kind of experiences that just really inspired me about um, some of the work that was being done in this part of the world. Um, just fast forward, just for the sake of time, um, over, over time in Hong Kong, we ended up becoming more and more involved with local church work in Hong Kong. And there was a nightclub district in Hong Kong called Lang Kwai Fong. It's, it's still here. And so we were all young 20 somethings and we ended up planting a church right in the bar district of Hong Kong and Lang Kwai Fong. And we became kind of local celebrities, like the newspapers would be interviewing us, the local bar rags would be interviewing us, because nobody starts a church in Lang Kwai Fong. If you're from Hong Kong, you say, I've got a church in Lang Kwai Fong. They're like, really? There's a church there? And and we would have these, um, it, it was really impactful in how we were able to to reach into kind of the the, the Hong Kong context in the run-up to 1997, this was when there was a lot of um, anxiousness in Hong Kong because the timetable of, of uh, Britain turning Hong Kong back to China was approaching in 1997. And we planted this church in 1995. Um, what ended up happening then was we, we had, a, the church was growing. We had, it was very successful, but we felt there was things in my life that I wanted to kind of sort out. There was dreams I had that could only be done in America. And so we ended up handing the church over, going back to America. I went to graduate school to get my master's in public administration because another goal I had was to run for public office. I always wanted to run for public office. And I grew up in the 
conservative, evangelical, Republican. That, that was the world that I knew. And so, of course, I'm going to run as a Republican. And what ended up happening was in 2004, I graduated with my master's in public administration from the University of Colorado. And I'll never forget my friend Scott, who was chairing a primary caucus meeting for the Republicans. The guy that was going to run as a Republican in our local area, um, I just thought he didn't, he, he wasn't going to do justice. And I, I remember thinking, if we're going to lose this race, because it was a it was a Democrat era. I was, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, which is very Democrat. I remember thinking, oh, if this guy is going to run, uh, you know, this is going to be really embarrassing. And at that moment, Scott comes off the the uh, platform and he says to me, Steve, why don't you run against this guy? Uh, not to turn this into a political podcast, but what ended up happening was over the next four months, I ended up in the primary, beating this guy, becoming the Republican candidate for the second congressional district in Colorado. If I'd won, I would have gone to D.C. I was on all the news channels. I was debating. But all I kept feeling was this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing at all. And if anything, I started to get this, wow, the the Republican world that I'd kind of idolized growing up has a dark underbelly I wasn't completely at at home with. And so even my campaign manager, who was a former pastor, said to me towards the end, he said, Steve, I'm, I'm getting the feeling, even though you you want to go into this, that you haven't given up, you know, your your Christian ministry desires. And it, that was the truth. I I I was becoming very disillusioned with that, but I was also very disillusioned with the Christianity that I'd, I'd been raised in. It was so embedded with this kind of Republican nationalism, and it was only in, in my years overseas that I began to see that there's a, you know, there, there's a, uh, th this is at complete odds with what Jesus taught in the kingdom of heaven. So I ended up um, losing that race, deciding politics was not for me. I almost felt like God was saying, did you enjoy that? You know, almost like I let you, I let you have a little taste. This is the world. Is this what you really want? I'm like, no, no, that's, that's not it. And it was at that time that my wife and I felt we really want to go back to Hong Kong. We missed Hong Kong a lot. And so the opportunity came for us to come and work with the school network that I'm currently with, that I've been with for almost 15 years now. And so we've been back for all this time back in Hong Kong since about 2008. But I just I'll, I'll end this little synopsis of my life by saying um, a couple of things really impacted me in the last 10 years, which has kind of spurred my faith and kind of got me directed into uh, peace building, wanting to connect with Peace Catalyst International. And, and it was this I became very disillusioned even when I came back here with the church. I was never disillusioned with God. But I just I was I was bored. I, I I thought surely the Christianity that Jesus and and that the way Jesus sees the world and wants us to follow him, it has to be better than the structure that I've found myself in for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And it was then when I read Brian Zahn's book, uh, Beauty Will Save the World. And it was like it's like my Christian faith went from black and white to color again. Like suddenly there was, there was meaning in it. And that led to just reading a lot of different folk and realizing that I wasn't alone, that a lot of the feelings I was having about the way God wants us to walk out our lives, that it, it was at odds with a lot of the, the Christian upbringing that we had held as being Christian. It wasn't the case. Um, the second thing I'll say is I became a, a pilgrim. I have walked the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage. First time was in 2015, and the second time in 2017, a 500-mile Christian pilgrimage. And it was during that time that the Eucharist and understanding what I— there, there was a saying on the Camino de Santiago that the Camino is God's dream of how people are in the world and how they would love one another in the world. And there's something about— the the mindset of people walking that pilgrimage of 
uh, self-sacrificing love, preferring others before yourself, seeing uh, the whole life as a journey with a with a that the destination is not near as interesting as the journey itself and the people that you're walking that journey with. Um, and so that transformed the way I understand my Christian faith and the way I engage people in peace. Oh, I subsequently went on to walk in 2018 the um, uh, Via Frangigena. I walked from Canterbury, England to Rome, uh, 2,000 kilometers. And so it was during that time. I'm actually just finished the book of that and really talking about how my faith in humanity was restored by the kindness and goodness of people that I met along the way. That was, yeah, that was great to hear a little bit more about where you've been and, and what's brought you here till now. Um, so what, I'm just now curious, like what's, what's the day to day like, like where, where do we find you in this particular moment? Yeah. Uh, my job is I am the school chaplain at a network of schools and I oversee the Christian and community development division that allows me both to uh, have an expression of my Christian faith, but we're not an explicitly Christian school. We, we don't have a statement of faith here. We don't require our teachers or students to be of the Christian faith. They just need to know that we have a Christian underpinning and be open to the idea that there's going to be assemblies and there's going to be prayers in, in Christ's name. And it's, it, that's helped me become a better peace builder because I've had to navigate the world. It's one thing if you're only in the Christian world and you're only speaking to Christians. But in the context that I'm in, I'm having to speak and deliver assemblies and assemble delivered talks that are going to be received by not just Christians, but atheists and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and, and Jews. And, and it's, it's actually helped me be a better peace builder and has helped me in my empathy and understanding of other, other, you know, people around me. Mm, that's really beautiful. Uh, and I think mirrors a lot of the things that we talk about and, you know, firmly believe at Peace Catalyst so I can see why, what attracted you to us and what attracted us to you. Cause there are a lot of, um, yeah. You know, you know, Hong Kong is great in that, um, you know, in, when I go back to the States, sometimes it's frustrating because people feel like there is maybe a less of a Christian, um, uh, that, that homogeny is being disrupted and there's more plurality coming in and it makes people feel insecure. It make, puts them on the defensive. And I've seen that. But in Hong Kong, there's really not a lot of that at all. What's interesting is because of the history of Hong Kong, um, we, have a, we have a main artery uh, road in Hong Kong called Nathan Road. On one side of it is an absolutely gigantic mosque. It's huge. On the other side of the road, almost right across the street, just a little farther down from it, is one of the oldest Anglican churches, big church, uh, St. Andrew's. And I always think it's it's interesting. There is no um, th there's no troubles between the different groups in Hong Kong. Everybody just kind of gets on, minds their own business. Nobody feels like they have like a corner on the culture in Hong Kong. Everyone's just kind of um, going about their business. About five years ago, one of my Muslim colleagues here invited me to that mosque, and I've been walking by that mosque for over twenty years, and I'm always thinking. What's going on in there? What goes on in that mosque? I see people going in. I see people going out. It's big. And because it was Muslim, there was always this feeling of it being um, other. And there was something I uh, not understood about it. And what was interesting was when I went with my friend, he invited me and a, a Catholic friend of mine. They were wonderfully warming and welcoming. I almost felt like I was going into the structure of an evangelical church. It's like they had their welcoming committee, people that would help me, you know, visitors can come here and, you know, it, it, and it's funny how suddenly that other that had been built up in my mind for two decades was just burst and suddenly they became real people. And now when I walk by that mosque, I'm like, oh, I know that place. That's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very warm and welcoming place. And so um, Hong Kong has been great for me for that, because it's really exposed me to different cultures, different religions, different uh, perspectives, without a one particular perspective really outweighing the other one. Yeah, I would, 
since we're talking about Hong Kong, and I mean, you have been there for, you said 30 years cumulatively over your your time there. And then when you left and came back, is that yeah, right? I came right. in 19, I came in 1990 and I stayed to almost 2000 and then came back in 2008. So. Gotcha. Okay. So you witnessed quite a bit of history. So um, we're wondering if you could give us a bit of a primer on the independence of Hong Kong, um, shifting from British rule to Chinese rule and how you've seen that affect the city. Yeah, we don't use the independence word here. We uh, let me let me say is Hong Kong is an inalienable part of China since ancient times. That's the you know. I'm only partially kidding. Um, they're very sensitive about that word independence here. Um, yes, I, I I had the privilege of seeing a lot of history here. I lived in the last seven years of British colonial rule. I was here on the night of the handover. Uh, I was here on the seven years leading up to it when everyone was asking, what's going to happen in Hong Kong? What's going to happen when Hong Kong goes back to China? And it was interesting because for seven years, you lived in this British colonial city where you had a white governor. You had a legislative council here that was made up of Chinese and white people. And you had white cops and Chinese cops. And you had... The Queen's portrait was in every, you know, government building and library and post office. Um, the colonial flag and the British flag was flying everywhere. And then the next day after the handover on July 1st, 1997, I'll never forget waking up that morning, going to get a newspaper out of my house and the government building that was quite near us that I'd walked by for years that always had the Union Jack and the colonial flag flying suddenly had the Chinese flag and the new Hong Kong flag. And there was just this feeling of, wow, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. You'd go into the, you'd go into the uh, post office and you would see the dust line of where the portrait of Queen Elizabeth had been removed. Um, it was just that kind of thing. But by and large, there, were, there was those kind of aesthetic changes. But for the most part, Hong Kong didn't change. Um, it was pretty much the same Hong Kong up until 2019 when the protests happened that many people around the world saw what happened. And, and subsequently, yes, there's been changes in Hong Kong. I think um, due to the violence that happened and a number of issues, China's come in. And they brought in a national security law, which on the positive side, really um, stopped the violence. And I think everybody's really appreciative of that. Nobody wanted to be in a city where firebombs were going off, and which was very, anybody who'd spent all the years in Hong Kong that we'd been, that was totally unlike anything we knew here. This was the most peaceful city. And then suddenly this polarization really had. And it's not any different really between what would happen in different parts of the world, between in the US where you've got the Dems and the Republicans, the you know liberals and the, the conservatives, and there's just such an intense polarization. My British friends have the same thing with Brexit. You know, they'll talk about how they'll go to family meals. And for the sake of family unity, they can't talk about it because some some folks will be so adamant about Brexit, either for or against. What we have in Hong Kong here is called the yellow and the blue. And the yellow is the democracy gang, and the blue is the government gang. And it has torn families apart. I've been in church pastoral meetings where pastors have talked about how, you know, they'll have a police officer in their worship team and somebody who's a democracy protester and, and just the hate, you know, between them, um, there, there's numerous stories and podcasts interviewing families that have just been wrenched apart because they find themselves on polar opposite sides of this. I remember hosting a piece before I even connected with PCI. Um, I run a group called Bread and Wine here where we just invite people and we explore issues of faith that, you know, would be maybe a little bit uh, sensitive in different areas, you know, uh, LGBTQ, you know, inerrancy of scripture, the kind of questions that people want to ask, um, and but sometimes feel nervous asking them in their home churches. We try to create a, an environment, environment where we can talk through these issues. And um, I, I hosted one because I was just getting so despondent over the, the vitriol between the yellow and the blue. Um, 
I mean, you'd be told you're walking down the street, oh, don't go in that shop. That's a blue shop or that's a yellow shop or that's owned by a blue. That's owned by a yellow, which is, again, something that we were not used to hearing in Hong Kong. And as a non-Chinese person, you know, I have the advantage of kind of being a fly on the wall. Nobody expects me to take a side on this. And I have friends on both sides of this issue who feel very passionately. And so I try to to navigate that. But coming back to my bread and wine story, I I tried to have a few folk, but one person said something and man, it just set this other person off. And it's just... We, we got everything calmed down, but it, I was just reminded how trigger sensitive people are about uh, the issues going on in the city right now. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like um, there's definitely a need for peacemaking there. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I'd say I'd say the, one of the, I've, I've asked myself, you know, how I can contribute to this. Like I said, I've got friends on both sides and it's hard because you know that the, the Chinese are very, I mean, it's a, it's a generalization. I don't want to generalize too much, but I've been here long enough to say culturally they're, you know, they're, they're different than um, America or, or the UK. They don't see themselves as a nation state that that nation state has been kind of imposed on them by a different structure, a Western structure, They're, they really see themselves as a civilization. Um, and it is an ethnic civilization. And that has pluses and minuses that come with that. Um, but mm-hmm. for an outsider to be commenting into that turmoil, uh, you have to be really careful about what you say, it, for many of them, this is a family matter to be solved within the family, um, which I think sometimes Westerners, um, you know, I've, I've asked even some of my my Chinese friends who are, say, British and very British or very American, maybe second or third generation, but they've come to Hong Kong for work or they have family through through history here. And I've asked them, you know, what's it like? Because China looks at you as one of theirs, even though you're British, even though, you know, which is different because I'm ethnically German, but Germany doesn't say I'm one of you, you know, that, you know, come back to the the fatherland because you're really, even though you're American, you're really part of us. Um, I think for the, a lot of the Chinese mindset, it is a, it's a different way of seeing the world. And that's why when you engage in these conversations, it's, it's 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 good to do a lot more listening than talking because mm-hmm. there, there, you're too a lot of times and when I was younger I would I'd be thinking well this is just rational or this is just logical but not realizing that I'm really coming from my Western mindset and I you know there, there's a lot to be rethought when you're engaging this part of the world with the cultures that operate here. Yeah, wow, that's such a great um, insight. And I'm curious to hear because, you know, it well in Peace Catalyst, obviously, we talk about like understanding, connecting and then collaborating um, across lines of difference with with others for peace. And so it sounds like I love what you're saying about listening, because when we listen, that's how we we can understand people. And then from there we can um, connect and then collaborate. Um, are there are are there locals that you can collaborate with for, for building peace there? Or like, are there already kind of peacemakers within the communities or? Yeah, there, 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 there is. And, um, I've, I've recently, um, I have confirmed in the Anglican church in the last year. And so I've, I've kind of gone out of the evangelical setting. And so the church I've been attending has a lot of history of peace building, which is one of the reasons I was drawn to it initially. Um, I, you know, it's a good question because it's, yes, I've got a lot of friends, but it's a little, it's sometimes it can be difficult because we're almost in a stage now where people don't want to talk about it. And, um, you know, I was, I was with a group of fathers maybe about a year ago and this, this whole issue was coming up and, and it was, it was actually a very constructive conversation. Uh, it was through the school here and some of the parents, but it was a father's group. 
And so because I'm a long time person here, I'm a Hong Konger, but I'm a non-Chinese Hong Konger. I'm a permanent resident here. And so one of the guys asked my perspective on the blue and the yellow thing. And I said, you know, it's interesting. I, I've always kind of really identified with Hong Kong as a Hong Kong person, that there's Chinese Hong Kongers and there's, there's South Asian Hong Kongers, there's brown Hong Kongers, there's white Hong Kongers, there's black Hong Kongers. There's, that's probably changing now where that's not really the view that maybe is taken north of the border. And I said, for a long time, I used to identify in that capacity. But I said, what I'm seeing now this is what I told him is this is a family matter. And I said, the best metaphor I could see is that I'm renting a house. I'm sorry, I'm renting a room in a house where the husband and wife are fighting on the front lawn. And I have a vested interest because I'm renting a I'm renting a room in the house that you own. And this is the place that I've called home. But I realize that I can't really get into this. You know, to what degree can we insert ourselves into a squabble between a husband and wife or, or family members mm-hmm. to the degree that they want our input? We can and maybe we can mediate. But if I'm largely this is going to have to be things that are solved within the family itself and to the degree that we can create a, a an environment where that can come about. Um, I think that's the best way forward. I don't have the magic bullet on how that occurs, but we have to walk it out with a lot of understanding, peace, and and uh, and understanding. Yeah, I'm curious if you see any examples of that. If you see, yeah, if you see that being done, you know, whether within or you know within the culture itself, or from some external party, group, organization, church, whatever it may be, trying to like come in and, and do the conflict resolution, peace building work. Um, have you have you witnessed any of that? Have you seen, and maybe attached to that question, um, you know, the, the friends that you have on all sides of the issue, what's, what's the what's the receptivity to that? You kind of mentioned that, you know, we're, you're approaching a point where people are a little bit disengaged perhaps, or some are, and, you know, not really wanting to talk about things. Um, So. And that's definitely something I've, I think two things have happened. There's been a huge exodus from Hong Kong in the last 18 months, absolutely huge. So I think a lot of those dissenting voices have actually left. Um, And so that, I don't know if that fixes the problem because it hasn't really been solved. It's just been um, there. There's there's just been a lot of some of it was for political reasons. Some of it is because of the strict COVID measurements here. Um, to, to answer your question, you know, in the same degree that I could say of America, you know, how much work is being done to bring Democrats and Republicans together? Yes, there are small groups. There's different churches that are operating. There's different social groups, but it never seems to get the attention that the that the the uh, vitriol itself actually had. The vitriol seems so much bigger than any peace building activity that's seeking to address it. From what I've been able to see, um, so. Yeah, I think there's been spits and spurts, but there's been no real, um, I I think there's been people trying to reach out on both sides a little bit, but it's, you know, what happens to them is the same thing that people that try to reach out in America across the aisle, you end up, you know, getting dismissed, you end up getting um, uh, marginalized. And so I, I think that's another reason why I've noticed in the last 18 months, things go from very vitriolic to very quiet. It's almost like everybody's just keeping it in. Just let's not talk about it anymore. And which in the end, maybe not good either. I'm curious about the students that you're interacting with. Um, have you sensed any desire for peace building, bridge building, however, whatever the language is um, that they would use. I'm I'm hoping to be able to answer this question more in a few months or a couple of months, because I've been asked to run a course um, at at, at the school I'm I'm at. Uh, We're going to dedicate one class time a week 
to a, um, it's called quality learning. And it's trying to get, because our students are so academically rigorous, we're trying to holistically round them out in different areas. So I was approached, Steve, would you be interested in running one of these? And what would be the topic you'd be interested in? And I said, yes, I'd love to. And I'd love to do it on peace building, basically creating a, an environment for a whole semester where the, the kids look at what is active peace building look like, not just in Hong Kong, but in different um, communities around the world. To answer your, your question um, about the students, the, the network of schools that I work with we really have some of the future leaders in industry. I, I've challenged our teachers and our leaders. Often I get to uh, address them. And I said, one of the, the joys that we have is that the students that are under our tutelage are going to go on to be leaders of industry. They're going to be leaders in economics and medicine and in, in science, and even more importantly in politics. And, um, you know, like I oversee this um, uh, service learning fundraising group within our organization called Seeds of Hope. And we've raised money, we've built libraries and schools across mainland China and the Philippines. And I take, we non-COVID times, we take students to uh, the Philippines for service learning work. And sometimes I'm challenged, like, why are you taking Chinese students to the Philippines when we could take them to China? And we do take them to China for some service learning as well. But as I like to say, I like to challenge them, one day, some of these students could be foreign department leaders in China. They could be the ones who are the movers and shakers, the ones making the decisions. And as the South China uh, Sea, uh, the geopolitics get gets more polarized, gets more tense. We, we're all seeing this happen. I want the students that I have engaged with who have come under my mentorship, that when they're in positions of power, maybe it will come a time when they have a, a conflict with some geopolitical issue with the Philippines. And we know that that's a possibility because they have conflicting claims uh, in the South China Sea. I want my students to be viewing the Filipinos not as other, not as enemy. But remember those little children you held in the nursery? Or remember the kids you played football with? You know, to be able to uh, give them the experience of like I almost had with the the mosque, you see other countries, you see other people, you see other cultures as other. And but when you engage them and you meet them personally and you have relationship with them, you can no longer view them as other. Doesn't mean all conflicts go away, but it creates the possibility of bridges being built so that conflicts can be avoided. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so cool to hear about all these different initiatives that you're a part of and ways that you're collaborating with, with locals there. And, um, it's been a fun job. I've, I've had a lot of opportunities, you know, it's, um, living in Hong Kong has been a real blessing for my family and I, and I work working into China. Um, despite some of the challenges going on right now, I'm, I, I love China, you know, and I, I'm, despite geopolitical tensions rising between America and China, I'm hoping to be able to, in whatever capacity I can, you know, just help alleviate that. Sometimes, you know, with things are happening where, um, you know, there's is some animosity building towards America. Uh, I want to be that face as someone who appreciates China, appreciates their history, appreciates their culture. Um, like I said, I've got a lot of mainland friends, so they can't mm -hmm. be my enemy because I have relationship with them. And so mm. um, I think that's that's in, in any, you know, in, in any sphere, once we have relationships with people, you know, positions I've had in the past, maybe where I wasn't LGBTQ uh, friendly in the past. Well, then I have LGBTQ friends over the years and suddenly things change. Some of my attitudes towards Muslims when I had no Muslim friends are different now that I have many Muslim friends. In fact, within the, the Christian group that I run here, the, the Christian and Community Development Division, we do a staff prayer meeting. One of the girls that comes is a Muslim. And it's a, it's a Christian prayer, and I'm very sensitive, and we've talked about it, but she show, so enjoys the love we have for God and with each other and the community we have. She has been part of that community. And so she knows that I respect her relationship with God, 
her, the, I, I know she loves God. She loves people. And for me, that's some of the commonality that I need more than a, a theological checkbox, you know. So yeah. that, that's the kind of community we're trying to build here at the school, uh, ideally in Hong Kong, and uh, as Jesus would say, to the outer, outermost parts of the world. Yeah, that's great. I, I love what you're saying about building relationships and how that really does impact the way that we can can understand um, and connect with people who are different from us and who whom we could consider an enemy um, in certain contexts. I, th- I think it's often too, it's the unfamiliar too. When we're unfamiliar with something, we're on our defensive against them. And as soon as they become familiar, as soon as there is a again, a relationship, as soon as, as soon as that fear, so much of what, so much of how we engage with the world and how countries engage with one another is out of fear. Fear drives our politics, fear drives our economics, you know, fear drives our, you know, cultures. And I think once we can, we can alleviate that fear, um, we, we, we will do a will be a long way to seeing the uh, the kingdom established on earth as it is in heaven yeah absolutely um it's great hearing about the schools that you run could you share a little bit you kind of talked about where these students could be going in the future um what have you seen in your students that are coming up through through your schools uh you know it's 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 great because even though we're an international school, uh, the demographics have changed. So we're obviously more and more, we have Chinese or Chinese nationals in, in the school. And so it's, it's been great to be able to um, help them see an international perspective often when they, they haven't um, maybe experienced one before. You know, it was interesting. We took, um, this is how I understood about 10 years ago how Chinese use the word foreigner, which is completely different to the way the Westerners would use the word foreigner. Because I, I think we would assume a foreigner is somebody who doesn't come from a particular place. Well, I remember going with a group of year eights to, to uh, America on a school trip. This is what's great about our, our school. When I went to school, our school trips were to like the local cider mill or the local museum. Here we get to go to America and, you know, Spain and, and take the kids to these uh, cultural enrichment trips, which we call world classrooms. And uh, so I was with this group of, of Chinese students. And when we got to San Francisco, I think we landed in San Francisco. One of the first things she said to me, she's Mr. Hackman, there's so many foreigners here. And I thought, I'll use this as a teaching moment. And I said, well, you know, here, um, you're the foreigner and they're not the foreigners. And she looked at me like I'd said the stupidest thing anyone could possibly say. She said, Mr. Hackman, that's ridiculous. She goes, I'm Chinese. And that's when it dawned on me that when, when she says the word foreigner, she means non-Chinese in the same way like a Jew would say about a Gentile. The world is, is you know, separated into two different spheres. There is the Chinese and there is the foreigner. Whereas I was just assuming it was, you know, you're just not from this place. And, and so being able to kind of be in a place where I, I love the feeling. I, I also teach a global perspectives class, t- taking some of our students and sometimes their vision is this way and just opening it up just a little bit. It's um, obviously that's not unique to just Chinese students, but that's, uh, that's, that's with any student around the world, but that's, that's the hand I, I have here. And it's, it's been a real blessing. They're, they're a wonderful group of kids and I want them not to be just movers and shakers, but I want them to be empathetic movers and shakers. I want them to be kind movers and shakers. I want them to be compassionate. I think every year, everybody knows, every student here, I'm big on the fruit of the spirit. Everybody has to be bearing the fruit. You know, are you being more patient? Are you being more gentle, you know, compassionate, self-controlled? That's awesome. I mean, so yeah, with that, I think a a great place to conclude, um, you know, obviously we've we've kind of bounced around from, from topic to topic in our conversation, um, which is good because, you know, no one area is isolated from the other. So, you know, your, your context is just so full in Hong Kong. Um, I'm just curious what, yeah, what, what do you want to leave us with? 
Um, I think probably what to leave you with would be that, you know, Hong Kong is a special place and a lot of people don't understand it. They, you know, they, they don't understand the history of it. They don't understand how special it really is. And, uh, it's, it's been, it, it's been a place where, um, people from all cultures can come here and make a life. It's been interesting because yes, it is a Chinese city. Yes, it is part of uh, the People's Republic of China now, absolutely. But it's still a wonderful uh, land of opportunity where you can do things you couldn't do anywhere else. You can have experiences here. And I think sometimes in the media, and particularly the Western media, they try to make it sound like it's all falling apart. It's all, you know, China's come in now with a heavy hand. And um, I mean, am I, am I a fan of every aspect that's happened in the last couple of years? Absolutely not. But by and large, um, things continue to go well here. There's opportunities for peace building. There's opportunities for um, a good life. And I think sometimes when people read about what's happening in Hong Kong, they think, oh, it's it's dying or dead. And it's not. I think there's some some great years ahead. I know China really wants Hong Kong to succeed. And they have, for the last 25 years, even though it's under Chinese sovereignty, they've allowed a, a, a high degree of autonomy here. Uh, it's it's a you know there is a border and with and it has its own uh, it has its own currency, its own legal system, its its own passport, and so it's um, I I think yeah to just to just end by saying is that um, Hong Kong's a great place with a lot of opportunity. I've been very blessed to be part of its story in just a small way. And uh, I look forward to contributing in whatever way I can a, a peace dynamic. I wanna be a peace builder here. Um, and I wanna I want to see Hong Kong succeed. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Steve. Oh, thanks, Becca. Thanks, Allie. was so cool yeah really really cool to to learn from steve and i've never really learned much about the context of hong kong mm-hmm. and the different dynamics there but of course like we've all seen um what's been happening in the news over the past several years there so it's really cool to get his perspective as somebody who's technically an outsider but has very much been integrated in the community there and has been working and living there for such a long time. I really appreciated his perspective on what it looks like to engage in peacemaking there, but also to like to understand the cultural context yeah. and not be someone to kind of like, yeah, like impose a certain model of peacemaking, but to to really get to that root of like building relationships and loving people across those lines of difference. Um, and even those whom you could consider to be an enemy based on different like politics or identifications. Yeah. So yeah, re- really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a good um, point to draw out from our conversation with him because I, you know, think so many times, and I mean, I won't, I won't, I definitely won't speak for every culture or ideology or religious tradition, but I, I feel like it's tempting just as humans to feel like when we are looking at a problem, um, that we, and we might have ideas of how to solve or how to be, you know, meaningfully engaged in the solution. Um, so often we think we are like the, the carriers of, or, or that it, it's like our burden to, to, to figure things out, to get things moving. And, um, you know, obviously that has poisoned a lot of, um, various cultural contexts in the past, especially coming from the West with the answer or like a savior mentality. I mean, you see that time and time again throughout history. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think that is also something that I'm walking away with is like, you know, how are you a peacemaker in a 
when also an outsider. And so I think you are bringing up a great point of like, obviously PCI's model is starting with understanding. And um, there was just such an emphasis in our conversation with him on understanding his friends, no matter what they think um, about what's going on in Hong Kong. And um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was also struck by that. Yeah, for sure. And I think I love hearing the cultural context because it's so key. And yeah, we can get very um, imperialistic sometimes with our Western, uh, you know, mentalities or ideologies about like what it looks like to um, resolve conflict in a variety of, of contexts. So, yeah. Um, and I think I really appreciated also hearing about Steve's journey of getting to where he is today, because obviously he, yeah, had a very diverse, like, background of wanting to be an actor and then going into youth with a mission and then ending up, you know, running these, um, this education foundation. And, um, yeah, I just, I really appreciated what he was sharing about pilgrimage too, and, and how connected that was to his spiritual journey and also, um, yeah, becoming sort of disillusioned with the kind of Christianity that was, um, politicized and culturally like maybe skewed, I guess is one word, um, growing up and, but, but that he was able to sort of find a new way of expressing and like growing in his faith through reading Brian Zahn's books. So I just appreciated that journey and and that perspective. And, um, yeah, it's just a good reminder that all of us are on a journey and, um, I really respect his, like, his ability to not just like give up on his faith journey altogether, but to, yeah, to pursue something that created um, meaning for him and that he, he could connect to. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is so admirable. I agree with you when, you know, when you confront like a wall or, or, or what you might see as a, a barrier or something that doesn't really add up with the way that you've thought previously to like not, turn around, but to like push through and maybe go deeper, find a way around. And I'm so excited to see what comes of his work with these students. You know, I think that's just such an amazing opportunity to equip and build peacemakers in like a, the younger generation. I feel like there's just such opportunity there. I, I can only imagine how um, just rich that experience is. Totally. I feel like that is so key to our future <laughs> and yeah, equipping those, those young people and also, yeah, incorporating peace education into, um, yeah, how we're educating youth. And so, yeah, really cool stuff. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.